overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Amen. No, no mountain he won't scale, no door he won't kick through for his love to reach us. He is an awesome God. We appreciate that reminder, Shane and Jordan. We've been blessed. What are the chances, Corky asks, what are the chances of two different guys coming up with the same verses? What are the chances of one pulpit in this whole church and the three different men that stepped up to this pulpit all had gray hair? What are the chances? There is no such thing a chance. It's called the sovereignty of God. Before I step into the passage, I want to offer those of you that were here last Sunday an apology because our opening song and our opening song, I said we were going to have an extended time of worship. And that was based on the fact that um, I thought that the T4G share time would be shorter than it than it was turned out to be. Uh, And uh, and I learned my lesson not to make a promise where I'm not in control of the sermon time. So um, as I looked at my watch when we were supposed to be having our extended time of worship, I realized "Eh, that's not going to happen. It's too late. And so um, I just ended our extended time of worship. But I do do have a heart for that. And in the near future, I hope that I will get to fulfill that so that we can. Spend an extended time in the presence of God. When uh, when I can be in control of how long the sermon takes. This, this morning, I am in control of how long the sermon takes. And there's nothing going on after this. So we have lots and lots of time. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9 this morning. And as you know, Matthew arranges his material in 8 and 9 as he begins to focus on the ministry of Christ into... Um, Two different segments. He, it's it's amazing and, and amusing how he'll describe three miracles that Jesus did, and then a teaching on discipleship, and then three miracles, and then a teaching on discipleship. And this morning we are on a teaching on discipleship. So Matthew chapter nine verses nine through thirteen. As Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with Tax collectors and sinners. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Two things I want to look at in this passage are. Matthew's calling and then uh, the Pharisees mindset towards contamination. It might could call it avoiding sinners 101, this teaching. But first, the calling. I remember as a new Christian reading in the Gospels, some of the disciples callings. 
And there they are in the middle of the careers in many instances. Uh, they're mending their nets. They're in their boats. You know, they're, they're, uh, they have tools in hand or in Matthew's case. He's sitting at the table. He's doing his job. He's got the books open. He's a t- tax collector. And Jesus just walks up to these people and he, and he says, uh, follow me. And they just drop what they're doing and follow him. And I thought, wow. What what charisma he must have where this perfect stranger could walk up to somebody and maybe with a divine smile or really white teeth or or just that look. And they just they just unbuckle the tool belt and drop it and follow him or they just leave the nets or or close the books on the taxes. And and I and I used to marvel, man, he's so powerful. And then I realized there's a little more going on to it than that. It's not quite that mysterious, although God is that powerful. The disciples already, of course, knew who Jesus was. He had been ministering now for many, many months. He, he was in their, their territories, on their turf. And so they had very likely witnessed miracles all around. You know, the crowds were great. So great in the last message, I believe, Jesus had to go across the lake to kind of escape these crowds and minister in another place. So... Word was already out. Uh, very like they they've already sat under his teaching. They were already enthralled with his message, and so it's not quite as mysterious for Matthew to just drop what he's doing and follow Jesus. There was already some kind of camaraderie going on there, and that's really how the call works. I mean, they were as suspicious as we are if somebody walked up to you and you in the middle of your job and said, uh, "Could you?" Follow me. Are you just going to stop what you're doing? Or are you going to think, wait a minute, who is this? What are they about? Is this safe? Can I afford to miss the work, my paycheck? And, you know, a lot of these things would go through our minds. But it didn't go through Matthew's mind all at one time because things have already been going through his mind as well as anybody else that has been called to follow Jesus. The Holy Spirit was already at work. I like what Timothy Keller says. He says, Christianity is not something you take up. It's something that takes you up. And when it comes to the call, the reason that a person would stop what they're doing dead in their tracks and follow Jesus is because there has already been a tremendous amount of work from the Holy Spirit that has taken place in the individual's life. In order to bring them along step by step, phase by phase to where they are now ready to positively and affirmatively answer the call of Christ. There there are already little decisions that we've made in our minds, little mini decisions. We've, We've already made up our minds about certain things so that when the call comes. That effectual call, we answer this time. I say, yes, this time it's for real. And when you look at the dynamics of what all that goes into just a simple call of discipleship and you read the scripture about it, you find that actually really what what happens is is um, before we answered, Jesus called us before we called out to him. He's been calling us the whole time. We learn that in Romans eight. And there's a lot of passages, but just to use a very familiar one. Verses 28 through 30, we know 
that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. How does that work? Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many among many brothers and those whom he predestined before they were ever even born, before they came into the world. He also called and those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified. And a lot of scholars call that Latin order salutis, the order of salvation. We were chosen in him before the foundation of the world, before we said a single thing, did a thing, single thing, thought a single thing, had any affection toward God at all. He predestined us. He chose us before the foundation of the world. And so when we come into this plan, we're in in God's plan that's already in motion. And he begins his work mysteriously and individually and uniquely in all of us. Illuminating our minds to the work of the spirit, illuminating us to who he is. So when the call goes out, we answer it. There comes a point in time where we will answer that call. So you have the predestination, the calling, and then, of course, justification, sanctification, all the way to glorification. So, as you know, if you're a believer and you're saved, you know that God worked on your heart before you made that decision. In other words, God makes decisions before we make our decision. We make our decision because a decision has already been made. The Holy Spirit begins to work on us. And that's not the same for everybody, which is, I think, is neat. But generally speaking, the Holy Spirit is working on us and we become more sensitive to things that we weren't sensitive to. Primarily sin, because the Holy Spirit came to convict of sin. And if God's Spirit's working on us, all of a sudden, wicked, evil things that we used to just not have any problem with now stumble us a little bit. They startle us a little bit. And it's just something just doesn't feel right. That's the spirit at work convicting of us, us of our sin. Or it could be also in addition to that, then you, you get this restlessness about life and start asking questions that you never asked before. Why am I here? What is all this for? Am I, is this it? Is this all there is? And there's a spiritual Stirring, and one day it wasn't there, and then this day it is. We become aware of things, and then the eyes of our heart begin to open up to this world that we did not know existed, or this kingdom and and the ways of it. In Matthew's case, he is collecting taxes. He's a bad, bad, bad sinner. There are sinners and there are bad sinners. We'll look at that. But he is an enemy because he is collecting money for the enemy from his own people. People did not think very highly of that. It's even worse than working for the IRS today. And Jesus comes to him and he pursues him. And Matthew follows And there may have been a time, I'm sure there was a time in Matthew's life where if this had happened at any other day, a month, a year, three years before this, he may not have been ready. There may have been hesitations and fears.
But this particular day, whatever hesitations and whatever fear that he may have had or whatever thoughts, they were overcome. And he is ready to close the book on the taxes and push the coins aside or stuff in his pockets, whatever he did. And now Jesus is his new focus on life. God made his heart ready to make Jesus front and center. I remember when I was um, in the process of me coming to Christ, the gospel was shared with me. Scriptures were read as a child and I never got it. I was blind in my sin, just didn't connect the dots. And then when I was a young adult, the gospel was clearly read to me and pronounced to me. And, um, you know, at first it's like, eh, maybe might be true. But there came a point where I wrestled with it and I realized, wow, those that scripture is true. I am a sinner and God is righteous and he is. I do need a savior and he's the only way. And I knew it was absolutely true. My eyes were open to something that I didn't know before and didn't embrace it as truth. But I didn't act on it. But God brought that step into my life. So, so at first I didn't even know the gospel or didn't believe in it. And then now I actually know it's true. I believe it's true. And I know for a, a very awkward season of my life, I had to live inconsistently because I know if I died right now, I am going to hell. And yet wasn't ready to change anything. I still loved my sin and my life more than the fears. But then there came God kept pursuing and that inconsistency in my life when I know what was true, but I'm living contrary to it. It caught up to me and the hound of heaven, as they say, just bore down on me and and I could barely move anymore. Spiritually speaking, I had to have Christ. I had to have Christ. And so there came a, a time when I called out to him, God, save me. And he did. After he thought about it for a while, he did. But all of those things happen because of the work of the Holy Spirit. I, I didn't just wake up in a good mood one day and say, wow, the skies are blue, the sun's shining. I just think I love God today. I think I'm just going to follow him and forget all these worldly things that I've been involved in it. That's not in me to do. God pursues us first. He he tills the soil of our hearts. And then the word gets in there. Reminds me of. um, It's frustrating if you work in concrete because concrete is incredibly strong. I mean, right in this area, code is 3000 PSI as far as compression strength. It's strong stuff. But our sidewalks crack. But you get a little crack and concrete and just a seed from whatever vegetation that's in the area. I don't know how long it sits in there, but eventually that seed will sprout and push the concrete away from itself. That's the power of the word of God. And it comes into our hearts by the power of the spirit and it pushes things that were immovable. We thought, uh uh-huh, that person will never come to Christ. Their heart is like concrete. It's too hard. 
I cannot see that happen. Really, we don't stand a chance with the power and the word of God. So Holy Spirit begins to work on us. He pursues us first because Scripture tells us it's not in us to pursue him. We're not righteous. We don't hunger for it. We don't desire for it. It has to be put in there. So left to ourselves, Romans 1 says, or Romans 3 says, nobody pursues him, not Jew, not Greek. Nobody pursues God. And then Romans 1 says that the truth that we do know about God through general revelation, we suppress it. We push it down. We stifle it. We don't embrace it. And that's what I did for about that year or so when I plainly believed in the gospel but refused it. I stifled it. I was, it's like, no, I don't want it to be true in a sense. <clears throat> we reject him. But eventually, because of God's grace, the light comes into the darkness. Because of God's grace, we have that thought that was a good thought. We had a good thought about God. We had a right and accurate thought about God because of the grace of God. And then Paul tells us in Ephesians that in order to know God rightly, you have to have faith. We don't have it in and ourselves, but Christ gives it to us as a gift. It's not in there. I'm going to put this obedient faith into your being. It's my gift to you. It's God's gift. It's a grace. We, we didn't do anything to deserve that gift. He didn't say, oh, I see you're trying so hard. You love me so much, but there's just one thing missing this. It's you don't love me. I love you. You don't pursue me. I pursue you. You don't deserve this. I give this to you as a gift. And it's believing, obedient faith. This is what you need to come into my kingdom. Paul says he does it that way so that we don't boast. What would we do if we thought it was of ourselves? God would be small and we would be big. And just so we know that God is big and we're small. Not by works. It's a gift so that no one may boast. And so this particular day, and I've heard people know that the call of Christ is out there after their hearts. And their answer to him is, not today, Lord. Not today. The call's there, I hear it, I get it, but not today, not me. But then there's a time where the same call, the same truth, the same gospel, gospel go to that same obstinate heart. And it is, yes, today, God. Today I want you. Today I will follow you. Today I'll drop my tool belt, whatever it takes. Because Jesus is the priority now. So God works in these ways. Another way to look at it is a lot of times he makes us aware to the things on the outside. You might have heard a song that ministered to you on the radio. You might have accidentally been tuning in for stations and a sermon comes and you're like, whoa, I didn't mean to hear that, but what? Or just accidental things that happen in life get our attention. You, you walk out, you, you walk away from an accident. And you look at the mangled vehicle and you think to yourself, man, I don't even believe in God, but 
there's no this. This can't be an accident. There must be something out there that is powerful and apparently gracious or loving because I, what am I doing on my two feet? This kind of stuff happens all the time. It happened to me before I came to Christ. I was reckless. It wasn't reckless love like God's. It was reckless sin. And I mangled a few vehicles. Don't drink and drive. You ever hear that before? And there were times I would walk away from a mangled vehicle with just some blood and think, man, you look at that and then you look at me and the two don't match. There's just no way. You don't have to be a scientist or mathematician to figure out that there are things that just happen that are out of this world. And that's why it happened. I just recently read, as a matter of fact, um, last Easter, came upon this little article in Fox News. A British family celebrated Easter Sunday, marking two years of what they call their Easter miracle. So I don't know why it took them two years to write this article, but they're reporting on something that happened two years ago. And on Easter Sunday back in 2016, then two-year-old Dylan miraculously woke up from a coma one day after he was taken off support, life support. He's taken off life support. He's a kid. You know, his parents are on pins and needles. You shouldn't have to make these kind of decisions. He's a kid. He's taken off life support. And they're expecting him. They're waiting for him to die. And the next day, he wakes up from this coma. Now, here's what his mother said. I am not massively religious But I did think it was a miracle. So there you have it. Here's a person. I'm not even really religious. I I don't even know if God exists. He may. He may not. He's he's not really important to me and my my life. But what just happened? This is a miracle. So now she has to wrestle with her inconsistency of I'm not religious. I don't believe in these things. And yet those things that are out here just happen in my little Speck of the world in my life. And we got to reconcile. So God does these things in our lives. And he, he opens our eyes to the inconsistencies. It's the Holy Spirit at work. Drawing us, wooing us because God loves us so much. And then what happens is that the, the life that you begin to see on the outside. The otherworldly stuff. And you think, wow, whoever's out there, they're. They're doing a good job and they must be really um, able and to control this situation where I can walk out of this mangled car or somebody fell several stories and they should have splatted like a bug on a windshield and they get up and walk away from it or parachutes don't open. These kind of things happen. And then you step to think to yourself, whatever's out there, I want it in here. It's nice out there, but I want it in here. I want that person to be in control of my life in here. I want him to manage these things. If he's in charge out there like that, if he's that good, he's that powerful, he's that loving. I want him in here. That good, that powerful and that loving in my heart. And when you come to that point, you realize that Jesus must be central. 
That's how you answer the call because you're, you know, you got you having to give things up and put him in the center, front and center. He's the new priority. He was the new priority for Matthew. Everything else, everything we used to suppress God and the truth, and now we we're pushing away the worldly things so we can keep God up front. Everything else takes a back seat. That's why, yeah, there's times in our life in our lives we we drop the tool belt and close the books. It's being called, and it's when the new life of discipleship starts. There used to be this device, and for you young folks, you won't have any idea what I'm talking about. There used to be this device called a pager. <laughs> and um, this was before you, like, you had your cell phone and your whole life in this little device called a phone. Now you get calls, you get texts. I mean, there's so many ways for us to communicate. But there was this way back in the dark ages... All you had was this little device. It was a pager. It buzzed or beeped or whatever. So you could go and find a phone to call whoever it was trying to get you. And and uh, sometimes it would have the number that wants to reach you in it. So you could get in your car and drive to a phone booth, whatever you had to do to find a phone. Now you just you got it right here. But um, people are still on call. But when, when, when you're on call, and I remember there's people in here that have been on call. I remember Doc Wine has been on call, and he's had to excuse himself from, from church or something at times to, to see who is this, what's the emergency. Uh, Corky's been on call before. The sheriff's department's after him in the middle of a service or something, and he's got to answer it, and he goes and finds a phone or whatever. And to be on call means that you are available 24-7. And sometimes it means you might be right in the middle of a family dinner and then the pager goes off, the phone goes off, and it means you have to say, I'm so sorry, please excuse me, but I've got to answer this call. It could be in the middle of the night and you're sleeping and you're already sleep deprived. But you get the call and you've got to wake up, you've got to answer it. You have to see who it is or what they need because you are on call. Sometimes the pager goes off in our heart and it's, it's Jesus. And if he's front and center, you've got to answer it. I mean, you've got to go see what he wants. You've got to go see what's the emergency or how can I serve you? It's, it's the same idea. It's that call. This morning, he may be paging you unto salvation. You might be sitting there thinking, I'm not a believer, and I'm at that stage, perhaps one of the stages where Pastor Paul was, where I don't even want to believe, or I do want to believe, but I think the gospel's real, but I haven't embraced it yet, and your heart could be pounding because Jesus is calling you. And I pray that you would answer that call this morning. Answer it in the humility of your own heart, and let us know after the service. Hey, while you were preaching... That's that's the only interruption I accept during sermons is if you get saved or your heart transformed. Teasing. But answer that call. Perhaps God's, you know, once you get called, he continues to call us, doesn't he? 
He's calling us from this place to this place to this place. Now come over here. Now come over here. It's this constant because it's discipleship. It's following. Jesus is our new priority. And he might be calling us to a career. Some of us might be struggling with an occupation. We're not sure we need wisdom. And he may be calling to that. He may be calling some to the mission field. You know, maybe God, the spirit is like, this is what I have for you. Answer the call. He may be calling some and preparing some for ministry, whether it's pastorate or music, whatever it is. Answer the call. It's an obligation, your own call. Jesus is your new priority. And I like how Jesus says, follow me. It's so personal for God. He doesn't say, here's my book of rules. Read those and follow them. My system, it's so relational, it's so personal. Follow me. Watch where I go. Watch what I do. Listen to what I say. Feel my touch, my affirmation. Devotion. When you follow like this, you realize that he alone is worthy of that kind of devotion where you just drop everything. And if, if we don't think that that God, the son is worthy of our lives and of our everything, we're going to struggle with the rest of our Christian life if it really is a Christian life. Because we have to decide if Jesus is God or not. And if he's God. If he's really God, he has all authority. Absolute authority. And with that authority, he should be able to tell us anything he so desires. And we should say, yes, sir. Because if if, if we're not sure about it's really a question of the deity of Christ. Do, do we believe he's God or not? Because if we're not sure, then what in the person of Christ, then what we start doing is we start picking apart his teachings. And we read it or we learn about it. We start going to church, we experiment, whatever. We read about it. We say, I'm not so sure about this part where it says you can't marry unbelievers and be unequally yoked. I'm not so sure about this part where it says you have to obey your parents. I mean, who does that anymore? I'm not so sure about this archaic part where it talks about you shouldn't be able to experiment with your gender and your sexuality. I mean, that's so backward. That's so yesterday. I don't know about that stuff. And people in positions of authority that you are supposed to submit to. This is a free world. I, don't, I just don't agree with all that. I don't know about all that. If, if, if he's not God, if he's not that single authority in our lives, we're going to pick him apart and live a miserable life and a godless life. But if he is who he says he is, I mean, we just looked at just three miracles. He has power over nature. Jesus. He talked to it. 
the particles, the molecules, the dark clouds, the roaring oceans, and said, stop. And it stopped. And, and then he, he heals this. He has power over physical body that he created. He heals a leper. He heals blind people. There's no possible way they can get better. He touches them or he speaks. He raises people from the dead. Did we do that miracle yet or am I getting ahead of myself? We did that last time, didn't we? I'm getting ahead of myself. He's going to raise a girl, 12-year-old, Jairus' daughter, from the dead. He goes and touches her. She's dead. She's cold like my hands are right now. Because it's freezing cold in here. She's dead and... Man, they're having a funeral. And then he has power over the demonic, which talk about scary. Now, that, that scares me. This idea of something out there that's so powerful that might creep up on me or get into me or just influence me. And it's more powerful than I am in a way. And that creeps me out. But he he just speaks to the second. I guess it's. Accurate theologically to say the second most powerful thing in the world, maybe. But doesn't even hold a a stick because Satan's on a leash. But he speaks to things that leave us so vulnerable and helpless and powerless. And he just with a word, be gone. He Hebrew says he upholds all things by the word of his power. Now, when somebody like that says something to us, we're crazy not to say, like Mary, let it be done. Let it be done. You're God. It was crazy what God asked of Mary. Crazy. And in her little mind, sweet little thing said, okay. We're crazy not to do what God says to do if he if Jesus really is God. It's absurd. It's irrational. It's illogical not to just obey him. He has every right to rule what he rules. He has every right to ask what he asks. He has every right to call who he calls. We just have to decide for ourselves Who is he in our lives and what are we going to do with him? That's the big question in Scripture. Jesus is asking people, who do they say I am? Who do you say I am? Because how you answer that question determines the fate of your eternity. And everything from now to then. That's how the call of discipleship works. First, we believe that Jesus is the sovereign. You believe that. He's the authority. Everything else falls right into place. You don't have to have your theology all worked out first. Because when Jesus is Lord, then you read his word, then your theology comes worked out. But it works itself out. But if you're trying to work all this other stuff out and Jesus isn't sovereign, it doesn't have authority over your life. It's just not going to go very well. Jesus is God. That's. First, that's what we follow. We follow this person. We're not following our emotions. We're not following 
our feelings, because they run out. We're following the person, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Savior. We cling to Him. And Scripture says that Jesus has more good plan for us than we could ever even imagine. We think we are good managers, managers of the pleasure aspect of our life. I know how to self-indulge. I know really what to give myself what I like. And Scripture says, actually, God has more good for you than you ever thought could be possible. And that's why we read in, in the Gospels these little passages that boggle us, like when that one woman comes down, gets down on her knees and she pours this very, very costly perfume on Jesus' feet. I mean, just totally recklessly wasteful. And the disciples are like, whoa, that stuff is gold. Just poured it all in one place. This is enough to last a lifetime. And she's down there. She just poured it all out. And she's wiping his feet with her hair. Because in her mind, man, this is God. This is God. This is my Savior. I can't think of a better way to spend anything in this world than to give it to God and use my hair. It's God's too. I'll use that. And yeah, I'll wash his feet. Makes perfect sense. When you see God like that. When you don't see like God like that, we get all uptight. You want how much money? How much will it cost to do that? Well, no. Everyone who loves God rightly and truly has been effectually called by God. Is your pager going off this morning? So Matthew gets up and he follows. And then something happens. He brings us into the second point of contamination. Matthew follows Jesus and he decides he's going to throw. Basically, it's a party. And he invites all his friends, all the sinners this side of the Jordan are here at Matthew's house. It's, it's a big to do. And he, verse 10, has Jesus. He's got his, his master's Lord, Savior's new friend. He wants his other friends to know about this big thing in his life. So he throws a party. And behold, many tax collectors and sinners came, verse 10, and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So there they are, the barbecue, whatever you want to call it. It's a, it's a big deal. It's, um, it's a dinner party. And they're chowing down. <clears throat> and um, so there's Jesus there. And they, what uh, Corky said in one Sunday school lesson, in the warp and woof of their lives. When you invite somebody into your home, you know, it's, it's, it's an intimate thing um, when you do that. And it's meant to be. And hospitality is actually a kingdom power. That we can use to influence people for the kingdom. You bring them into your homes. When you share a meal and they sit at your table, it's no different because you're closer. And they, they can see what you like. They can see what you've spent your money on. They can see how your kids behave and stuff that you don't see here just on a Sunday morning as a loose acquaintance. But when you invite them, hey, come over to my house for lunch, then it gets a little tighter. And so all these people are gathered and there's Jesus. 
And I'm assuming they're all having a wonderful time, except for the Pharisees. The Pharisees are not having a wonderful time. I don't even think they were invited, but I guess it was an outdoor party and they see it's going on. What's all that noise? What are all these sinners doing in one place? Oh, my goodness. I feel yucky just thinking about it. And they're wondering what in the world. And so uh, they say, interestingly, to his disciples, kind of they don't go to Jesus himself. Well, the Pharisees saw this. They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So what are they saying? Yuck. As a pastor, I visit hospitals and um, frequently, and I know that you've run into this as well. But uh, you go into a hospital and sometimes people are wearing masks. And uh, and you and you wonder, OK, is that mask to protect me from the germs that might be coming from this? Because whatever they have, it's contagious. It's so contagious. They got to wear this embarrassing mask on their lives, on their face. Or is it to keep my possible contaminants out of them because they're they have a low immune system? And you're thinking these things, right? When you. And then you get into an elevator and it's not them just walking down the hallway, but now you're in an elevator and they got this mask on and you're thinking, I don't I don't know which one it is, but I'm going to play it safe because whatever disease they have, I don't want it. And the doctors told them they got to wear that thing. So. I hold my breath until I pass out because I don't want to breathe it in. The way the Pharisees looked at this, the way it works, is that in life you have um, two groups of people. You have the righteous, and the righteous are those that obey the law. They live according to God's law. They're the righteous. Um, And the Pharisees are the kings of the righteous club. They're the leaders of the righteous people. They help people um, in their obedience to the law. And then the other group is the people that they're they're the unrighteous. They're the sinners. They're the people that do not obey the law. And that's the dichotomy there. And the problem is that you don't want to get too close to the people that don't obey the law because you might catch it. You might catch their disobedience. So they didn't just think of it in in physical contamination. It was moral, it was spiritual. That's the way they thought. You don't want to you don't want to be around. You don't want to get too close to the disobedient because you might be defiled and made unclean. And you just spent a lot of time, most of your life staying clean. It's hard work. So. Don't ruin all that hard work and just go into the presence of an unclean person and then and then you're defiled. That's how they thought. So um, is that right or not? I mean, before we jump on the Pharisees and boy, the Pharisees are such easy targets in Scripture. But before we jump on them, is there any truth to that or not? Well, yeah, there is. There is some truth to this idea about healthy boundaries with people that don't obey the law. Proverbs says, don't let sinners entice you. Don't get near 
the gateway stuff. If you're tempted, you got to know your hearts. Uh uh-uh. uh. Don't, don't sit there and just wait for yourself to be tripped up. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, um, the, what scripture do we hear from our parents constantly growing up? Uh, bad company corrupts good morals. No, you can't go over to their house. Bad company corrupts good morals. No, you may not watch that movie with those people. So, yeah, it's in scripture. And we know community is strong. Friendships are strong. And you have a tendency to want the things that the people that you spend the most time want. You have a tendency to start thinking like the people that you spend the most time with. You're kind of giving part of your life to them. So community is tremendously important. It's undeniable in Scripture. God uses community to bring light into the darkness. But it's not exactly accurate, this dichotomy. Because Jesus plays their game here in his response. They see themselves as the righteous one there, the sinners. And he says to them, I came not for my interpretation. I didn't come for you because you already have it together and you don't need me. You're perfect. Perfect specimen. Mind you, so obviously I came for these people that really need help. That's, that's really what the Pharisees were thinking, and so he plays that game with them. But then he turns the tables a little bit. And he says, go and learn what this means in 13. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There are two things that are at work here. First, he plays their game. He reveals their game and he plays it. This idea of two groups of people in the world, the good and the bad. The Pharisees way was you obey the law, you're in. It's a religious way. It's a religion of the world and we are more religious than we think. Of course, religion can be good in the sense of it's just rituals and practices. They can be good things, but done with the wrong motive. That's what makes them so dangerous. We have a tendency to do the same thing the Pharisees are doing, divide the world into two groups of people, even in different times and different places and different kinds of groups. We have a tendency to constantly evaluate people into groups based on conduct and morals and, and put ourselves at the top. Based on whoever's in here, based on the group of people that are in here, I see myself as this. We have internal codes of conducts and, and morals that we judge people by. Even prisoners, even in prisons, there, there are groups, there are gangs. Uh, and, and there are those who look down at others. Sinners. Boy, that crime was, man, I'm in here for this, but whoa, you're in here for that. So I'm just going to hang out with these people. You're, be, you're beneath us, below us. We're constantly doing that. Jesus takes them to school. And in essence, he says, go back and read your Bibles. Go check. Be a student of the word. Sometimes you've got to dig in there and you've got to see what God's really saying. So go back and check your Bibles. I came not to call the righteous, but 
sinners because your conclusions are backwards. So what the um, what the Pharisees had done was they had elevated the ceremonial parts of the law to the detriment of the moral aspects of the law. That's why when God breaks all of those commandments down to love God and then love your neighbor, what is it really about? Is it really about the act of staying ceremonial, ceremonial clean, the rituals of the sacrifice, or is what God's really after? Those are tools to teach us to love God and love one another. They made the law and thought that they were earning heaven because they were so disciplined in the ceremonial things while they totally hated and ignored and sinned in their hearts. They totally avoided the other, the bigger part of the law. That's what Jesus was always calling them to. You, 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 um, you avoid the gnat and you swallowed a camel. So he's saying, OK, you know, good job. You stayed ceremonially clean in this, but you're using that little law here to avoid loving people. You're not even you're you're you're, you're um, dedicating your money so that you don't have to take care of your parents. There's something missing here. So they the, the love part was gone. That's what God means by this. Love your neighbor. You can't ignore the moral. Because, um, yeah, it, it's good not to swallow the gnat, but the camel's kind of hard to get down. So. so that's the ugly truth in this passage about how we have a tendency to think that we're better than others and to divide the world into two groups. It's, it's some kind of moral code that we use. But really, in the end, it's this. There are those that humble themselves before God and there are those who don't. That's the dichotomy. There are the saved and there are the unsaved. We're all beggars trying to get the bread of life. You have to be careful. About how we look at each other. That's the ugly truth. But there's a beautiful truth here that I want to close with. They think that coming into un, uh, contact with the unclean, you're going to catch the disease of the immoral. Um, and you know what Jesus is teaching here? And it's just incredible. As he's saying, when, when you come to me, you follow me and you give your life. You give, give your heart to me. Give your life to me. Here's what happens. You don't contaminate me. All that sin and all that filth. I infect you with my holiness. I infect you with my beauty, with my purity. You don't infect me. Keller says, anything in anyone I touch, speaking of Jesus, anything in anyone I touch, anyone I connect with, anyone I have a relationship with, no matter how defiled you feel, hear these words, please. No matter how defiled you feel yourself to be, no matter what your record, no matter what you've done, no matter how ashamed you are of yourself, no matter what has been done to you, no matter how stained, no matter how you feel, no matter how ashamed you are, no matter how guilty you are, no matter how defiled, I make you instantly clean. 
That's the good news of the gospel. That's the power of God unto salvation. Sanctification. And he makes us holier and holier and holier and holier and more and more pure. And he purifies our thoughts and our actions and he draws us to himself. And we look more and more like Jesus. That's sanctification. That's what we're all supposed to be doing as Christians. God owes us nothing. But Christ has come for us. He's extended the invitation. He's calling for us in that revelation Chapter 3 verse about here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, dine with him, sup with him. Man, there's that intimate fellowship right there. I'm, I want you in my life. I don't want to keep you out here where you just know a little bit about me. Come on in. I want to come into your life. What are you thinking about? What are you using your money on? What's draining your heart down? He wants to share his holiness and his goodness with him. It's an invitation to share our lives together over a meal with Christ. There's a song, I think, that um, if you guys want to come up, there's a song that like fits perfectly, I think, with this this call here. By Elevation Worship called O Come to the Altar. And um, we're going to play it and sing it. Just to give an opportunity in your hearts, where you are, in your hearts to, to commune with God. And to, to apply whatever the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. But here are the words. And if you listen to the Christian radio, you already know it. But are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Christ. Jesus is 